Please turn with me to uh, the book of Matthew 25. We're going to be doing, uh, looking at a parable of the talents today. And um, Mark is going to do the Bible boxes. So um, if you are... (laughs) We actually had planned that beforehand. It is true. I'm not just calling them out. Uh, So anyway, if you uh, would like a Bible box, they are back there. So Matthew 25, we're going to be looking at that in just a few minutes, starting at verse 14, the parable of the talents. A few years ago, some women from the church and I went to Texas to go to a conference on spiritual formation. We met up with another woman there who is from one of our L.A. churches. She is originally from San Antonio, and so she offered to show us some authentic Texas culture. Since she had a car, that sounded pretty good to us. So what you need to know is that while each of us came from, um, well, we were all the same gender, uh, but that's kind of where the similarities ended. We were all completely from different backgrounds and races, which was fun and turned out to be enlightening. Because of what we were learning, we were having good discussions about identity and how culture influences us. After one of the stops, we all piled back into the car, and I took a turn in the front seat. Because we were jammed in, some of the purses had landed on the floor of the car at my feet. And one of the women said, um, can you please pick up my purse? Kind of laughing, she said, in my culture, it's bad luck for a purse to be on the floor because something terrible could happen to me if it's kept there. To which another one said, yeah, I kind of need you to move mine too because in my culture, if you put your purse on the floor, it means that you're going to lose all your money. The devil's going to take it. Now, at this point, we're all kind of like laughing. And although they don't necessarily buy into the superstition, they really want me to move their purses. (laughs) Now, I had never heard of this before. And not wanting to be left out of the conversation like I didn't have a culture, I said in all seriousness as I moved the purses, yeah, I know what you mean. In my culture, we don't ever put purses at our feet because we're afraid the floor is disgusting and they'll get dirty. That's my culture. I have a culture. We must have laughed for about five miles down the road until the car broke down and we all had to get out. Which is another story for another time, but there was dancing. Now, conversations about culture are really important. As our experience with the purses highlighted, we view so many things, everything through the lens of the culture that we're raised in. And the culture that we're seeped in right now, it's unavoidable because that's what we know from birth. And learning to respect others and understand where we each come from can be a challenge, but it's a necessary part of connecting as humans and living together. It's part of loving each other more than we love ourselves to value our different cultures. One of the truths that come out of the scripture today is that there's a kingdom culture that actually transcends anything else that we know as individuals and peoples. Being part of God's world means that we are part of his family. And there's a whole new set of mores that are learned, that are necessary for life with him. But often in that, there's a clash of cultures with us and with him. Not necessarily in an ethnic way, although that can certainly play into it. It's more like the culture of our universal fallen state 
versus the culture of God's world. And what we're going to see today in the scripture is that in the kingdom of God, it is the Lord who reigns. We've been singing that all morning long. It is the Lord who reigns and we serve him to the best of our ability until the day that he returns. His kingdom gets to be the dominant one because he is God. So we have to be mindful of how worldly thinking can seep in. We live in so many cultures and that is such a great thing. And we have to decide which one we're going to embrace in our lives. And as we talk today, just remember that you're hearing this sermon from a 40-something American white woman with Irish roots. So let's read the scripture together. Matthew 25, starting with 14. For it, the kingdom, Jesus here is talking about the kingdom at the end of time. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. Now he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them and made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of these servants came back and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also who had the two talents came forward saying, master, you delivered me two talents. Here I have two talents more. And his master said, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gathered where I scattered no seed? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and, my com- and at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will be more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's pray. Oh, Father, please give understanding to our hearts and minds today. Thank you for your word, and thank you so much for these rich teachings of Jesus. Amen. This parable comes in the middle of Jesus teaching about what the kingdom of heaven is going to look like in the end times. He has already stressed preparedness, being ready and prepared for him to return at any time. And he's given some kind of vivid pictures about what that's going to look like. He now turns to the responsibility of the disciple. Jesus' ministry is winding down. These words are among some of his last before the events leading up to the crucifixion. So what I want to do this morning is I want to pull out five different attitudes that we have as humans 
really as people seeped in American culture that are exposed in this parable and how Jesus' teaching emphasizes instead a kingdom culture. And then we'll talk a little bit about the differences and the similarities that we find there. So number one, worldly culture says, my talents and gifts and possessions belong to me. I get to decide what I do with them and how to use them, which includes squandering, hiding, or anything else I decide. It's not actually your business. Now, kingdom culture says everything belongs to God. That's what Jesus is teaching here. You have what you have because he gave it to you to use here on earth. What you do with it matters more than if you had generated it yourself. God is the master. We are the servants. Therefore, he expects us to use what he has given us in a way that benefits the kingdom. In this story, the master is quite wealthy. Originally, a talent was a unit of weight and then a unit of coin. And in this, a talent is actually money. And scholars kind of speculate that the talent could have been close to a million dollars. A talent could have been close to 20 years wages. So it's a lot. Jesus is probably exaggerating the money. His hearers would have been like, what? He gave him what? He's making a point. God is wealthy. You can't come to the end of his wealth. Since it's a parable, we can extrapolate that talents can also refer to capability, um, possessions, spiritual gifts. In fact, the English word talent, meaning a natural ability or skill, actually comes directly from this parable. There goes Jesus changing culture. The word talent comes from him. The truth that God invests in people like you and me to do his most important work in the world is something that we really need to stop and consider deeply. Because in this nation, we're quite rugged individualists who value freedom and really being left alone. But Jesus quite plainly teaches us that if we want to save our lives, we will lose it. And when we lose our lives for his name's sake, when we find fulfillment in building the kingdom, then that is where we truly will find our home. The things we have been given by the Lord are for our use, but not just for the things we need. They are also for doing the work that he needs us to do in his absence. When we're surrendered to him, he um, directs our paths in all different kinds of ways. I know that you have experienced that. There is freedom in our life with him, but he will make his will known. If you are following him and listening to him, he will tell you where he wants you to go and what he wants you to do and how it is that you will use the resources he gave you. This recently happened to me in my move from working primarily to adults to now working with children and families. We were in a meeting discussing how we should fill the position. Where should we go? Should we emphasize this kind of person or this kind of person? And as we were talking, the Lord was saying, it's you. Colleen, it's you. You should move up and work with children. Now, I could have ignored that. Yes, keep warm and well-fed, new children, a pastor, an adult, or you know, families, whatever. But I didn't. I said, you know what? I love my new moo. I tell everyone I moved up to children's ministries. And I love it that I get to work with the kids. Now, God works in many ways to accomplish his purposes. So I want to ask you, who are you primarily serving, yourself or the king? With your talents of time and possessions and gifts and abilities, how do you decide? 
how you use them. Are you squandering them? Are you hiding them? Are you surrendered to the master? What does that look like? Number two, worldly culture says everyone should be equal. It's not just, it is not right for one person to get more opportunity, nor is it okay for you to say one person has a better ability than me. That hurts my feelings. I had to add that in. Kingdom culture says we're all created differently with a varied set of abilities. While we may not like it, we might not be able to explain it. We know it's true because we experience it daily in our life. In this parable in Matthew, all three people are given something different. The scripture tells us based on their ability. The master in the story clearly knows his servants. He knows what they are capable of. And in the end, he is spot on. It is the same with God. He knows what you are capable of. And everyone is given an ability. No one is left out. No one gets to say, yeah, I don't really know how anything I can do. Well, we are each born with a set of circumstances that both help and hinder us. God will use anything we're willing to give him. I think an interesting question to ask ourselves is this. If you were going away on a long trip and you needed to entrust some big responsibility to someone, what kind of person would you call? It's easy for us to not really care for the inequity of the situation. But the truth of the matter is that each one of us would choose someone we trusted. Someone who would care for things like we would want in our absence so that we wouldn't have to worry about it or think about it. In every system, in every organization, it's necessary to have people at every level. In fact, the Bible teaches that the parts of the body that are the least seen... And the least glorified are the most needed. That is true in life as well. God cares about each part of the kingdom. He loves us all equally. And yet he gives us different things to do and gifts us in different ways. And although it seems preferential, it's about gifting and going where we are most needed. Not where we think we should be because we're better than someone else but humbly asking the Lord where we should be. Number three, worldly culture says, go out on top. Rest on your laurels. Take the money and run. Retire and enjoy life. Now, those who are gifted and use their abilities to the fullest, Jesus says, they get more to do. God decides when we're done, not us. Jesus says, look, the fields are white for the harvest. There is plenty of work to do yet still before he comes back. We need to be working to build up God's people, to welcome new people into the family, to bring healing and lift up the poor. But this often comes into conflict with our American mindset that we're going to work for ourselves until we have enough money and then we're going to be done. We want to work until we have enough to let go. But really, there's no retirement in the kingdom of God. I want to be clear that I'm not against retirement. <laughs> not against that at all. All I'm saying is that this is an entirely a matter entirely between you and the Lord. Lord, retiring from a career is different than retiring from God's work. And I think that each one of us needs to be honest before him about what it is that we're willing to do. Yeah, I don't really want to do that, Lord, is not an option in the kingdom. It's not for me to tell you, even as your pastor. 
It's for you to come before the Lord and say, Lord, I'm willing to serve. I just don't really know where everyone can do something. The truth of there being more to do after a good job is actually also universally accepted in the world. If you want someone to do a good job on something, you ask someone who has a proven track record. You know the people in life who are trustworthy, who work hard, who have learned the best way um, to do things through experience. This is God's law at work. The master says, you are faithful in the little, so I'm going to give you a lot. So it is in life. Number four, worldly culture says, it's someone else's fault that I didn't succeed. My parents, my boss, God, my deficits. You'll see clearly I'm not as talented as the other two guys. I was afraid, so I'm going to blame. Where is that guy anyway? How can you expect me to work for a tyrant who is so incredibly terrible? God's kingdom says, you have to account for what you did with the talents that you were given. Because I expect you to put them to use. And excuses and blames don't really work. I had the fun of studying this text this week with two small groups that I am part of. So I want to give a little shout out to the sermon study people and the senior group for great discussions and hard questions this week. It was interesting because with both groups, I kind of had a set of questions where we were going to kind of go through it. And I kind of threw that out because in both groups, what both groups wanted to talk about was the exchange with the one talent servant and the master right away. They're like, yeah, I don't really want to talk about anything else. I want to talk about this because this bugs me. It bugs me that it feels like Jesus is saying that the master is unjust, that God is somehow crooked as a master and I don't really like that so we talked about it one of the things that we came to in both groups was that the servant was afraid he voiced that clearly but in his explanation he really did blame the master for the reason he had the money he really did blame his boss for not using what he had been given in addition to that he disparaged the master's character Blaming him for the reason his one talent was buried instead of being put to work. It actually sounded a lot like Adam and Eve in the garden. I've always read this parable that the master was not a person of integrity who got rich by cheating others. Because in their conversation, it seems like the master agrees with the servant's assessment before throwing him out. But what if the master wasn't really a bad guy? Just because someone who is getting in trouble says the authority figure is a tyrant doesn't mean it's true. Anyone here have kids? <laughs> in fact, there is nothing else in this parable that points to the master being a jerk. The other two servants are eager to share. In some translations, they say, see, see what I did. They trust him. They trust him in a way that they went out and went to work for him while he was gone. They trusted him away in a way that the other guy did not. So the master is pleased and praises them and offers to have them share in his joy. So you can read this. It's a parable. It's open to interpretation. You can read it like the master is agreeing that, yeah, you're right. I'm a bad guy. I do those things. I cheat and I steal. Or you can read it like he's simply repeating the servant's diatribe about him. If the master is supposed to be the Lord, then we need to be very careful about attributing evil to his character, as that doesn't really fit in with how we know him to be. It is true that we fear failure. 
We think that if the one talent guy made money, then the master would have been happy. But that makes money the main motivation of the master. In fact, the thing that God cares most about is a humble heart and a person who's willing to try and to ask for forgiveness, not make him wrong for the choices that they themselves have made. When there's a hardness of heart about who God is and an unwillingness to change, then there's an impasse. And when we have the accounting for what we've done with the Lord's resources, it's not going to go well. I think that the connection here for us is about trust. Do you trust God? Do you work for him in his absence in such a way that when he returns, you're going to be pleased to see him? The last servant didn't really know his master. One of my seniors came up with that. I love that. He made up what he thought was true about him and then suffered some harsh consequences. Maybe if he would have known his master better, he might have worked harder. Where are you in your trust of God? Number five, the world's thinking, use it or lose it. God's kingdom, use it or lose it. It's the same. Charlotte Bronte says, it's better to try all things and find all empty than to try nothing and leave your life a blank. We all seem to agree on this point. There has to be practice at things if we want to get better. Whether it's learning Italian working out your muscles, honing math skills, or baking a cake. It isn't enough to be smart or gifted at something, to have great abilities. We have to rehearse what we're good at, but that takes work. And the master of this parable says that the servant is lazy, which must be true. He's given a huge amount of money. Think about this. He's given a huge amount of money to expand his boss's estate, but instead he buries it in the ground. Matthew tells us the master was gone for a long time. So what's the guy doing for all the time that the master is away? Not much, apparently. In our studies this week, we also talked about the idea of risk. In this parable, the last guy took the most low-risk option he could find. The other two risked quite a lot. And I think they were rewarded for trying, not necessarily for making money. The last one gets chastised for not even try it. Use it or lose it. The lesson here might be that there is no standing still in the Christian life. God expects us to be industrious in our labor for him. What the parable does not mention is actually that we don't do this alone. While Jesus is gone and he is coming back again, we live with his spirit in us and he is constantly helping us, encouraging us, guiding us, giving us discernment and giving us strength. When we were in the car in Texas, we all naturally expressed a value that we had learned from our culture. Every day, all of us live out attitudes and actions that come from the family we were born into or come from the culture that we presently live in. It happens just like breathing. We're barely even aware of it until something else happens that makes us stop and think, Oh, not everyone does it that way. When Jesus came to teach about the kingdom, he showed us what life is like in God's culture. And he wants us to be so seeped in God's truth and love. And here, responsibility, that we reflect his life in natural ways, becoming more and more like him as we get closer to the day of his appearing. 
Dallas Willard said in his book, The Great, um, the Great Omission, the greatest issue facing the world today with all of its heartbreaking needs is whether those who by profession or culture are identified as Christians will become disciples. Students, apprentices, practitioners of Jesus Christ, steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. That's our challenge today. What culture we will choose to identify with the most And are we willing to put in the time that it takes to be the disciples that Jesus needs us to be until he returns? Because he's left us in charge of his vast holdings. And it is a sacred trust. He has given us so much. So are you doing the things that he would have you do while he's gone? Let's pray.